This is going to be week two in our Advent series, Behold, Behold. This year we did something that we've never done before as a family. We set up our Christmas tree two weeks before Thanksgiving. Now some of you hear that and are excited, some of you hear that and you revolt. Some of you are like, there are not only no Christmas trees or decorations, but no music until after Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I hear that, I do, I hear that. One of the reasons we set up a little bit early this year is because Christmas seems to go so fast. It's here and it's gone. It seems like by the time you do all the work of pulling the tree up and decorating and doing all the things, you're taking it down again. And so, <laughs> Christmas, if you're not careful, will be over before you realize. And so to help us counteract the busyness of this season and of this time and of this, uh, of this moment, and help us slow down, we want to behold. That's why we call calling this series Behold. The word behold means more than just to see something. It means to perceive through deliberate observation. To slow down, to take it in, and to see something for what it really is. And that's what we want to do. We want to perceive through deliberate observation and behold. This Christmas season, I want us to slow down and behold Jesus. Most of all, to behold Jesus and all that he is and what this season is obviously really about. Last week, we, we looked at beholding the, the promises fulfilled. And so we really, I preached a sermon like through the whole Old Testament, right? And, and looked at all of these ways, or not all, but a lot of the ways in which the Old Testament was pointing to and heralding and announcing and anticipating and longing for the coming of Jesus. And we said that. All of the Old Testament, the point of it is to long and behold and point to the coming of Jesus. This morning, I want us to look at another aspect of who Jesus is and his coming. I want us to behold him as king. I want us to see the king of kings, to see our king Jesus. Now having a king is, is, nothing, is something we as Americans really don't get or understand. The only thing we know about kings is how to overthrow them. And so when we try to think about Jesus as our king, sometimes we kind of miss what having a king is all about. As I think about having a king and having a ruler, I think about the first Avengers movie, the greatest Avengers movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. If you haven't seen it, stop what you're doing and go watch the Marvel movies. But in the first Avenger, uh, the bad guy is named Loki, after the Greek god, Loki. And Loki comes down, and he's the bad guy, and he's tr seeking to conquer and rule over the earth. And there is this moment where he's, he goes down to the streets of New York City, and he has this big crowd around him, and uh, he yells at the crowd to kneel, to kneel before him. And, and as good Americans and New Yorkers, they look at him puzzled, like, what? They look at you know, they're thinking he's just some dude in a costume like New York, you know, it's just kind of normal. And, and they don't, they don't puzzle, they don't understand what he's doing. And then he yells at them again, kneel! And like this power kind of comes out from them. And then they all are like, oh, oh gosh, and then they kneel down. And then he says to them, is this not simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. You were made to be ruled. 
and in the end, you will always meet. And as he stands, as he says this speech, there's a man in the crowd who stands up in opposition to him. And the man looks at Loki and he says, not to men like you. And Loki says, there are no men like me. And the man says, there are always men like you. And before Loki can strike him down, Captain America comes and saves the day. The point is, we naturally resist authority. Why? Because we have seen authority abused. We have seen it used for selfish gain. We have seen authority be corrupt. Like I said, our country is built off a rebellion against a king who taxed us too much. We are naturally weary and skeptical of and untrusting of authority. And so if we are not only going to behold Jesus as our king, but actually treat Jesus like our king, well, we need to know what kind of king he is. So this morning, I want us to look at eight quick examples, eight quick things that shed light on or show us what kind of king Jesus is. And then we're going to see how we respond to that truth. What kind of king is Jesus? Number one, he is the rightful king. He is the rightful king. In Arthurian legend, in the legends of King Arthur, in the myths, we're told that Camelot would find their true king, and it would be made, made known to all of the kingdom who the true king was by whichever man could come and pull the sword from the stone. And so men came from all over the world to see, uh, to declare their worthiness by pulling the sword out from the stone and become king. And they would come and they would pull with all their might and pull and pull and pull, but to no avail because the sword would not budge until one day when a young little boy who was pure of heart climbed up upon that rock and as easy as slicing warm butter pulled the knife or pulled the, pulled the sword out of the rock, and behold, Camelot had their king. How do we know who the rightful king is? We have no sword and, and no stone to be pulled out. Isaiah 9 and the angel to Mary in Luke 2, 2 both tell us that the true king will be the one who was born in the tribe of Judah in the line of David in the city of Bethlehem, the city of David, precisely the family and precisely where Jesus was to be born. God confirms that Jesus is the rightful king, not only to the Jewish people who had the scriptures and who knew how he would come, but he shows it to the pagans from the east. God places an unusual star in the night sky, possibly the alignment of planets or something like that. Uh, we don't, we're not quite sure, but the astrologers from the east, the wise men, see the star and know that the star is a sign of the birth of a king, the birth of the king of kings. And they travel to meet him, bringing gifts befitting a king. And as Jesus' ministry took off and as he amassed a following, it was the woman at the well, this, this woman who had all these things against her, who first called him Messiah. And it was later the disciple Peter who, looking at Jesus and he asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. Well, those two words, Messiah and Christ, are the same word in different languages. They mean anointed one. And what does it mean to be the anointed one? Well, who was anointed in the Old Testament? 
kings were anointed in the Old Testament. You remember the prophet Samuel going to find young David. And what did he do but pour oil over his head, anointing him king of Israel. Jesus is the anointed one, the king. It is also interesting to point out that Jesus is the only one to ever be born a king. Did you know that? There has never been anyone born a king except Jesus. Princes are born. Princes are born every day. But they must become king later when someone else dies or it's passed to them. Jesus is the only one born a king. He is the anointed one and the rightful king of the world. Number two, he is a king with authority and power. He is a king with authority and power. You remember when he was teaching, what do they always say? That he teaches with one as who has authority. As all of you know, the Queen of England recently died after reigning for 70 years over the Kingdom of England. And now their national anthem has changed. No longer do they sing God Save the Queen. They, they now sing God Save the King as this new monarch, the King Charles III, now reigns. But what does it mean for England to have a monarch? What does it mean for England to have a king? Well, today it is mostly about tradition. It is mostly about influence and symbols. King Charles is a king who has no real authority, who has no real power. The power in England lies in a parliament and in its prime minister, not in the king. So even today, as we see kings, often they are mere figureheads. And as Americans, we are kingless. We only know presidents who come and go every few years, and they don't have much power either. Because our power is balanced between two other branches of government. We do not know what it is like to have a single ruler who has absolute power, absolute authority. His word is done. But this is exactly the sort of King Jesus is. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. That's always struck me as a a weird verse. what, What does that mean? Well, the word government here is kind of confusing. But in the Hebrew, it literally means dominion or rule. Dominion or rule. It is his dominion and rule that is on his shoulders. And of the increase of his dominion and of his rule, there will, it will increase and there will be no end. Jesus came to take over. Jesus came to invade, to rule and to set up a new kingdom, to have authority over everything. We see the first parts of this authority in Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus encountered leprosy, he commanded it to leave the body of the infected person, and the leprosy obeyed. When he encountered blindness, he commanded the eyes to see, and they obeyed. When he encountered men who were paralyzed, he commanded their legs to grow strong and to work, and the legs obeyed. And when he encountered the dead, he commanded them to live, and even the dead obeyed his commands. When storms threatened to sink the ship he was on, he said, be still, and the winds ceased and obeyed his voice. 
when he needed to catch up to a boat that had left and went on ahead of him, he walked out on the water and he did not sink because the water obeyed his command. When he confronted demons, he told them to flee and even the demons trembled and feared and obeyed his voice. When he touched the unclean, he was not defiled. Instead, the unclean people became clean. And when he said, your sins are forgiven, he meant it, and he could even command things to be forgiven. When a mob in his hometown threatened to throw him off a cliff, he decided the conversation was over and simply walked through the middle of the crowd, and no one touched him, and they left him alone, and he went on his way. When he was challenged by the religious leaders, he answered every challenge and question, and he left them dumbfounded and angry. You see, all power and all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. There is nothing beyond his power. There is nothing outside of his control. He is sovereign, and all dominion and all power and all rule is his. Nothing catches Jesus off guard, and nothing can thwart his plans. When Judas, the betrayer, was going to betray him, he told Judas before he ever announced anything or left, Judas, go ahead and go do what you got to do. Because he knew, because nothing catches him off guard. You see, unlike kings and those in power today, his power knows no limits and no bounds. He is all-powerful and has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the kind of king we serve. Number three, he's a just king. He is a just king. There's an old saying, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. We have seen politicians and members of royal families be corrupt. We've seen cover-ups and scandals and shady things done by those who want to remain in power. We naturally do not trust people in power for often good reason because they've proven untrustworthy. Because we know and believe that power changes people. And so it is natural for us to think that an all-powerful God would simply be self-serving, that he would be corrupt, and he would not be just. We even see the corruption in Israel's most noblest king, right? When we see David, the most noblest king, the man after God's own heart, Israel's the standard for the king, what did he do? But he raped a woman, covered it up by calling, tried to cover it up by calling her husband home. And when that didn't work out, he sends her husband to the front lines of the battle and calls everyone else to retreat so that he can die. Even, as, even Israel's best king was bad and corrupt. So wouldn't it stand to reason that the great, 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 great grandson of David, the final king, would have some mistakes up his sleeve as well. Isaiah 9-7, which prophesies about the coming of the Messiah, told us of the king, that he will be on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. With justice and righteousness. Jesus is the type of king whose power is always used for good. His power always serves righteous and just causes. He is the very model of a just king. He always does what is right. Being just means he does not show favoritism. He does not excuse sin or let someone into heaven because they gave a lot of money. He does not give people a pass 
He does not cover up the wrongdoer and let them go unpunished. He does not accept bribes. He cannot be extorted. He cannot be blackmailed. He judges and acts rightly and justly always. Which means, which means that he is a king that can be trusted because he always does what is right. But it also means that he is a king that should be feared because those who break his laws will face appropriate punishment. Having a just king means everything is done by the book, that there are no shortcuts, that there are no deals to be cut, no favoritism to be shown. Everything he does is perfectly right. And now while that is a scary thing for those who break his law, they will get justice, and that is scary. It is good news for those who see him not just as just, but number four, who see him as the rescuing king he is. Who see him as a rescuing king. How does a just king rescue those he loves from his own justice? How does a rescuing king rescue those from his own punishment, his own wrath? If a king is just, he cannot take back candid deals or show favoritism or let his loved ones slide. How does he then rescue those he loves from his own judgment? In the Hunger Games the movie or the books, there is this game that happens every year. And all of the colonies uh, bring someone or send someone to the Colosseum, to the capital city, to participate in what's called the Hunger Games. And they have to survive in the wild and fight each other uh, for the entertainment of all of the people until only one person is left alive. The people who run the games show up uh, at the particular district and uh, where Katniss Everdeen lives. And uh, <coughs> no one has volunteered to go fight in the games, and so they are going to draw from a hat to pick who's going to go. And as they draw from the hat, uh, Katniss Everdeen's little sister's name is called. The guards come and grab her, and they begin to walk her forward to the stage as they cheer, and everyone else is dreading and is panic. And the panic is filling Katniss, and she's freaking out as her little sister is going off to what will be her absolute demise and death. And in a moment of sheer bravery, she raises her hand and she says, I volunteer as tribute. And she goes in her sister's place to fight in the games, to most certainly and most likely to die in the games so that her sister might go free. She is her sister's substitute. And this is what Jesus has done for us. This is why Jesus has come in the first place. A king who comes to take the place of his subjects. A king who comes to give his life in his subject's stead. A king who comes to face the gallows so that we might be safe. But Jesus does not do this in the heat of the moment. He does not do this in a panic or a quick decision. Rather, this has been the plan from the fullness of time. This has been the plan from the very beginning. It was his very heart. It was the very heart of Jesus that compelled him from the very beginning to plan, to put in motion all the things so that he could come and that he could die, that he might spare us. Kings are used to giving orders on a battlefield. They are used to commanding men to go and fight, to go and risk their lives, to go and give their lives. But we have a king 
who doesn't just command us to go and fight, but he goes to the front lines himself and willingly lays down his life so that we might be spared. Jesus is a rescuing king, one who is born to die so that we might live. Not only is he a rescuing king, but through this rescue, he, number five, is a victorious king. He's a victorious king. The Latin phrase is Christus victor. Christ has victory over his enemies. He has trampled them under his feet. He has won the battle. He has won the war. Victory is his. And his victory does not come by raising a sword or leading an army into a battle. His victory comes through defeat. His victory comes through death. His victory comes through losing. By allowing himself to die, by sacrificing himself, he unwittingly defeats the enemy. And not just by his death, but much more by his resurrection. So for three days, death and hell laugh. Death and hell mock and celebrate like they have won. But death did not realize that it was not strong enough. To hold back the overwhelming life that was inside Jesus. And so death itself could not hold him down. And so death, that's where we get the question, death, where is your sting? Where is your sting, O death? The grave could not hold on to Jesus. And so like the well that spit Jonah up onto dry land, so too does the grave spit Jesus back up because it could not hold on to him. Death tries to swallow him up, but there's like so much life inside of Jesus that it could, that death could not contain all of the life that was in him. Like the darkness that flees from the light of a candle, so does death flee from the life inside the corpse of Jesus that comes back to life. This victory and this death and this resurrection is the basis of what we call the gospel. The good news, the word gospel literally means good news. The word gospel was not a new word to Christianity. It was a word used during this time and before. It was used when a king would go off into battle. And after he had won victory, after he had defeated his enemies, he would send a herald in front of them to go back to the capital, to go back home, and to announce to the people back home that the king had had victory and that he was coming back with all the spoils of war. And so the herald would go back and he would announce the good news, the gospel, that the king had had victory. This is where the word comes from. This is how we know we have victory. It is the announcement that our king has gone ahead of us and he has defeated our enemies and he is coming back with the spoils of war. He is coming back with very life itself and death has been defeated. Our gospel is this good news. It is this proclamation that death and sin and hell have been defeated and victory is our king's and victory is ours. Jesus is the victorious king. But not only is he all powerful and has all authority and he's the rightful king and victory and battle. Not only are all these great things him, but, but number six, he's also a humble king. He's a humble king. You see, being a king and being humble are not two things that normally go together. Being a king and having humility are, is an oxymoron. With such power and authority typically grows arrogance and pride, but not for Jesus. When Jesus entered the world as the king of kings, 
the king of all the world. He could have chosen any way that he wanted to enter the world. He could have rolled the red, had the red carpet rolled out for himself. He could have had all the nations of the earth come and pay tribute to him. He could have been crowned at his birth and inaugurated king right there with all the treasures and luxuries the earth had to offer. But instead, he chose to be born in obscurity, to be born in a barn with animals, and to be placed in a feeding trough. His entourage, the red carpet, was a bunch of dirty, stinky shepherds who just learned about the news and showed up to celebrate. What kind of king is not worried about the fame and the prestige and the recognition? What kind of king doesn't want the red carpet rolled out for them? The kind of king that has so much power, has so much authority, that he wields it for good and is not so insecure that he needs the praise of men. He is not so insecure that he needs the attention. You see, Jesus is the very model of humility. Philippians chapter 2 reminds us, that he made himself lower than the angels. That he set aside his divinity. And he became small. He became vulnerable. Think about this. The God of the universe became so humble and so small that for a little while, the God of the universe became a single cell in his mother's womb. Jesus is the very definition of humility. And he is a humble king. And because he is so humble, number seven, he is a servant king. He's a servant king. Jesus led his life caring for and serving other people. The king who could have been sitting in luxury, being waited on hand and foot for every need and every desire, instead came to serve. That he cared and he went around to all these outsiders. He went around to all these untouchables, to the lepers who literally could not be touched, or you got kicked out of the city. He bent down and touched them and healed them. To the lame and the blind and the sick, who were left sitting on the side of the road, begging and were often ignored, he stopped and he noticed and he bent down and he healed them. And then to the real outsiders, to those uh, the tax collectors who were political capitulators to Rome, who were, who were hated by the Jews. And to, when the Bible says to the, to the prostitutes and sinners, to actual little prostitutes and hookers, Jesus went and had lunch with them. He went and had dinner with them. He went and sat down. And as everyone else was mad and accused him and yelled at him, he paid them no mind. Instead, he looked into the eyes of hookers and prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors, and he talked to them and he listened to them. He gave them attention and he befriended them. He gave up palaces to go serve in brothels. He demonstrated his service to his disciples. When he, at the last week of his life, comes into a room and he, he takes off his shirt and he tells them to take off their shoes because he's going to wash their feet. And Peter objects, like, no, you ain't washing my feet, Jesus. Because Peter knows he's just been walking outside with sandals on. Not only is there dirt and mud all over him, but there's animals walking up and down these roads. And so there's dung all over his feet. 
Jesus, you are not going to touch these feet. You're not going to clean these feet. But Jesus models what true servanthood looks like. And he bends down and with his bare hands watches the mud and poop off of the disciples' feet. His whole existence is marked by serving. And that hasn't stopped. Even now, from the right hand of the Father, he serves us now. In more ways than we can count or know, he's a serving king. And finally, he's our forever king. He's our forever king. You know, kings have, have always come and gone. They are raised up. Their, their princes are born. They're raised up. They rule for a while. And then they go away. They die, and someone else takes their place. But our king reigns forever. Luke 2.32 says, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. For all of human history, there is a pendulum swinging. As one leader takes power to the next, certain initiatives come and society goes one way, another ruler rises up and things go another way. Things go good for a while, things go bad for a while, there are ups and downs, but everything is still broken. Even in the ups and the good times, things are still bad. But we have a king who has come to reign forever, a good king who comes to reign forever. We are headed for a kingdom, and a a king and a kingdom that has no end, a good kingdom with a good king that lasts forever. No longer will times change. No longer will there be ups and downs. We will have happily ever after and a fairy tale-like kingdom for all of eternity. The reason we can have a king that lasts forever is because our king has already died. He's already died, and he's come back to life. Death could not hold on to him, and so he will never die again. And he grants the same privilege to us to be resurrected like him and to live forever in his kingdom and to never die again. Sometimes, sometimes the prospect of living forever seems daunting, and even if we're honest, a little boring. Sometimes it might seem like if we live forever, after a million years or so, we'll do everything and... What else is there to do? But the reason we think that way is because we have poor imaginations. We have poor imaginations about the sort of king we have. You see, the king we serve is a king who invented pleasure. He invented pleasure. He invented beauty. He invented fun. He invented every joy there ever is or was. And so his kingship is one marked by every day being better than the one that came before. His kingdom will bring the truest, greatest desires of your heart. It won't just be singing all day, though I'm sure we'll sing. Our worship of our king will be by living lives to the fullest in honor and service to Jesus, by building and creating and exploring and discovering and adventuring on and on and on forever and ever in the greatest kingdom that was ever to exist. This is the sort of king Jesus is. The baby in a manger is all of this and more. And so now the only question is, the only question that remains is what do we do with such a king? If such a king exists, a king beyond our wildest imaginations, if such a king exists, what do we do with him? You see, this king demands a response. A king like this demands a response. A king like this is not something you can ignore. Once you know about a king like this, you must respond. You must decide what to do with him. 
There are other decisions in your life that you can ignore. You shouldn't ignore, but you can ignore whether Coke or Pepsi is better. You can ignore that. We all know Coke's better, but you can ignore it. You can ignore whether Star Wars or Star Trek's better. We know Star Wars is better, but you can ignore it. You don't have to decide between the, even the biggest divides in our world, Republican or Democrat. You don't have to decide. You can ignore it. But what you do with King Jesus, you must decide. And it changes everything. C.S. Lewis said it this way. If you have your Pastor Brent bingo card, C.S. Lewis is probably on there. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It either changes everything or changes nothing. This is a king that has come to change the world. We literally mark history by his birth. This is a king that changes your whole life and the way you view and see everything now and for eternity. This is a king like no other. What you do with him changes everything. You can either embrace him and follow him or you can reject him. But what you cannot do is remain neutral about Jesus. It is impossible. To be neutral is to be against him. When you see this king for who he is, the rightful king, the king with all power and all authority, a just king, a rescuing king, a victorious king, and a humble king, and a servant king, and a king that is forever. This response, this response to this king, I think is threefold. Here's what he deserves from you this morning and for all your life. Number one, he deserves your allegiance, our unwavering commitment to him. To stand for him no matter the circumstance. To defend him against every assault. To pledge our lives to service to him no matter the cost. We do not pledge our ultimate allegiance to a flag, a country, or a man. We pledge our allegiance to King Jesus. He is the flag we plant, and on him we are unwavering. Number two, he deserves our worship. The wise men came a year or so after he was born, and they bring gifts, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gifts befitting a king. Not only did they give gifts, but they bowed down on their knees low and worshiped the babe lying in a manger. This king doesn't just deserve our fealty or our allegiance. He deserves our absolute worship. This king is God in the flesh. He is all we could ever want and need. We must always bow low and we must bring gifts, not of gold, but of our lives. Our lives come and we give our lives in service to him and worship. And finally, we not only give him our allegiance and our worship, we give him our obedience. Jesus did not come just to save us. He came to rule us. Not like a brutal dictator, but like the servant king he is. Like the king who comes to give his life. He, his commands are not meant to be a burden. His commands are meant for our good. And out of love we obey, and out of gratitude for such a king as this, we listen and obey his commands. You see, Loki was right. We were made to be ruled. We were made to kneel before a king, but not compelled by force, not compelled through power, but compelled by love, compelled by kindness, 
compelled by the king's sacrifice. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the question is, will you be compelled by his love to bow or will you be compelled by his might to bow? You will bow. You will kneel. The question is only one of timing. Is it now by his love, motivated by his his kindness and his humility and his love and his sacrifice and his victory? Or will it be forced upon you by his judgment and his power? When you behold the king in the manger this Christmas, I hope you see a king that changes everything. Everything in this world, everything in your life. I hope you see a king that is truly good and a king that you can not only serve, but a king that you can love. Let's pray. Father, this morning we gather together as your people. And Father, for those in this room who, for whatever reason, have come and gathered with us this morning, but realize that in the, in the deep parts of their heart that they've not made Jesus their king. Maybe they've outright rejected him. Or maybe they've played religious games with him. Maybe they've kept him at arm's length. Maybe they've danced around and let Jesus kind of, you know, be around when they need something. But they've never made him the king that they bow to and surrender all of their lives to. Father, this morning, would you give them the courage that as we sing this last song to come up here and talk with me and, and just share that. And let's talk about what it means for Jesus to be the king of your life and how he will save you and transform you and give you every good gift. He'll call you to die and in dying find life and life to the fullest. If you're here this morning and and you know you trust Jesus and you belong to him, I want to ask you to, to sing this next song and to just reflect on the baby in a manger. He is your king. He's not just a savior. He is that, but he's a king. A king who's come to take over. He's bringing an invasion, and one day every nation and tribe and language, every authority and every power and every feeble king will bow before the one true king of kings and lord of lords. We have nothing to fear because we have a king who has all power and authority. Behold him this morning. Behold your king this morning. If you need to pray about anything, about what it means to follow Jesus and make him your king. I'd love to pray with you and talk with you. If we sing this song, let me stand up here. Just just come up here and let me talk with you. Or maybe just sing a little bit louder to your king. God, give us the strength to do what we must. In Christ's name we pray all for success. Let's stand together.